This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, the place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So we talk a lot about science, we talk a lot about philosophy and even politics on this channel. Well, our next guest is kind of the fusion of all three of those disciplines. His name is Merlin Sheldrake. I think that thinking about fungi makes the world look different. And when the world looks different, we start to behave differently. And that's really something that I've noticed in myself. He has just written a best-selling book called Entangled Life about the mysterious world of fungi. We recorded this interview with Merlin a couple of months ago. We started with the basics, but pretty soon we got quite abstract. By the end, his description of the fungal world challenged some of our basic political and philosophical assumptions. I should start with a confession, which is that I am myself a very amateur mycologist, as in mushroom enthusiast. Many a childhood summer in Sweden, enthusiastically picking chanterelles and becoming quite obsessive as to where they tended to crop up year after year. Um, what is your origin story with the mushroom world? There are a few ways in for me. When I was a child, I was very concerned with um, how things change. How does compost form? You know, when you take uh, a bucket of compost outside and it turns into soil, and how does this happen? And how do piles of leaves, I used to like hiding these piles of leaves as a very young child, and, and they seemed to sink into the soil. And so I became interested in this process of decomposition uh, that seemed to happen uh, out of my sight, and yet so noticeably at the same time. And so the more I thought about the organisms that decompose the world and the more questions I asked about these organisms, the more uh, I always led to these mysterious fungi that seemed to oversee so many of these natural transformations. So that was one way in. Uh, mushrooms, of course, another because they're so um, striking. And I used to grow mushrooms as a child and, and you can always watch them grow. They grow so fast. And that was always a thrill. And then the subject of symbiosis, which I became more and more interested in as I uh, study biology. 
and the ways that organisms have found to live together in very intimate circumstances. And so when you think about symbiosis and the history of symbiosis, you, you can't go for long without running into fungi, who are main major players in uh, some of the big blockbuster symbiosis that have um, really shaped life on the planet. And so that was what took me into my interest in symbiosis between plants uh, and their symbiotic root fungi. So you've spent years now, you've been in Panama, you've been in Sweden, you've been researching the fungal world. Let's start with the basics for our audience. So what we think of as mushrooms, which are basically the visible fruits of a fungus, is actually only the tip of the iceberg. And actually, there are these whole things called mycelial networks, which are everywhere in the soil underground. Give us the kind of intro course on that. Yeah, so when we think of fungi, we normally think of mushrooms, which, as you say, are the fruiting bodies, uh, equivalent to apples on a tree. But most fungi live most of their lives as mycelial networks, which are branching, fusing networks of tubular cells. Um, and these mycelial networks are how fungi feed. So fungi don't do as animals do and put food in their bodies. Uh, fungi put their bodies in their food. And mycelium is the most efficient way to do so. And so they can explore, um, they can burrow into uh, wood or uh, animal bodies or the soil and navigate the cluttered obstacle course of the soil or burrow into solid rock. Um, all these different ways that fungi feed and this is all um, how they, the mycelium is their uh, feeding habit. It can actually do quite a lot more than we would necessarily realise these networks. There's a sense in which they actually, they communicate, they move material around themselves. Tell us about what these networks can actually do. Yeah, they're astonishing. They can uh, navigate labyrinths, uh, find the shortest point, uh, shortest path between two points in a maze. You can watch them nosing around microscopic labyrinths. It's kind of uh, amazing to see. Uh, they can, uh, they have very efficient ways of searching space. Um, you can take a fragment of a network and it would regenerate into an entire new network, meaning that these fungal individuals, if you're brave enough to use that word, are potentially immortal. Uh, one network can fuse with another network entirely to form a much larger network. And so there are many ways that these organisms challenge our animal imaginations. So you talked about fusing of networks. Th this idea, I'm not sure I pronounced this right, but this idea of mycorrhizal network. Mycorrhizal. Mycorrhizal, there we go, is, which is essentially different networks linking together, which can even connect plants together via this fungal network. Well, yeah, it's, it's easiest to think about it um, in historical terms. So in earliest days of plant life on land, these algal ancestors of land plants, little puddles of photosynthetic tissue sort of washing up onto the soggy shores of lakes and rivers. And these algae were not very well adapted to life on land, which was scorched and desolate and generally um, difficult compared to the nutrient broth that they'd been soaking in before. So they had this new challenge to deal with, which is how to acquire nutrients, minerals from the soil and water uh, from the soil. And fungi were really, they're experts at this today and they were experts at it then. And so an alliance began between these algal ancestors of plants and these fungi. And fungi behaved as the root systems of these ancestors of plants for the first 60 million years of their life on land. And so today, this still happens. And so 90% of plants depend on these root fungi to, um, to scavenge in the soil and to find mineral nutrients, which they exchange with the plants with, for sugars that they produce in photosynthesis. And so all plants, almost all of them, depend on these fungi. And these fungi 
um, are promiscuous. So one fungal network can connect with multiple plants and one plant can connect with multiple fungal networks. And so this is what we mean by the wood wide web. Um, these shared overlapping networks of, of symbiotic fungi uh, linked in trading relationships with plants. So this so-called wood wide web, it's essentially a, a kind of underground network that we don't see, we don't think about very much, but which is actually connecting all of these organisms together and fungi are pretty much at the heart of it. Yeah, so fungi form these literal connections between organisms um, and in the wood wide web um, we see this social network between plants um, mediated by these fungi and um, I mean the wood wide web itself is a kind of affectionate term, it's a convenient metaphor but perhaps too convenient um, because when we use it it's easy to think about the plants as the rooters, the equivalent of the rooters in this network and the fungi as the cables that link them together and um, in doing so the fungi kind of recede from view, they become quite passive in this metaphor, but actually they're very active parts of the picture. They can um, funnel, redirect the flow of material around themselves, branch, fuse, form new relationships with different plants. Um, so the wood wide web is, yeah, it takes us so far, mm. but only so far. The, the network is the brain and the kind of units that it connects are almost the kind of incidentals or they are Sort of secondary to it in some way, um, and one one example of that were these ants um, that you told us about, where essentially the fungus seems to take over these ants completely and control them. Tell us about that. So this is just one example. There are many many different types of fungi which have arrived at this evolutionary conclusion independently, and so fungi don't have twitchy muscular bodies. Uh, the ability to walk, bite or fly. And so to spread their spores, many of them have worked out how to commandeer an animal body and to puppet its behavior to achieve some fungal end. And the end is spreading the fungal spores. And so the carpenter ants that you mention, this is one very well studied example. There's a fungus called Ophiocordyceps. And this fungus, it grows into ants and it starts to wind its network through their bodies and it produces chemicals which alter its behavior and the ant's instinct is to stay low in the dark uh, in safe, uh, relative safety of the uh, forest understory. But when possessed by this fungus, it's compelled to climb up, it becomes fascinated with height. It's a, a syndrome known as summit disease and the ant climbs up, plants stalks and at a certain height, which is the optimal height for the fungus to fruit, uh, the ant is compelled by the fungus to bite onto the vein of a leaf, and this is known as its death grip. And then the fungus will run through the rest of its body and eventually will sprout a stalk out of its head. Um, and as much as 40% of the mass of an infected ant can be fungus, it really becomes a kind of prosthetic organ of this ant's body. And once the stalk sprouted out of its head, it can rain down spores on the other ants passing below and thus complete its life cycle. But what's interesting about these fungi is that these behaviours, these ant behaviours, are actually not ant behaviours, they're fungal behaviours. They are um, they're thought of by researchers in this field as a, a fungus in ants' clothing. So it really um, starts to blur the lines of where one creature starts and another one stops. So um, they raise all sorts of questions about individuality. Um, and there are many ways for this fungi to do this. There are other ones that affect cicadas and cause the back third of their body to disintegrate. And they have a very distinctive kind of erratic flight. 
while they spout fungal spores out of their uh, disintegrating back ends. So you used the word possessed at some point. So essentially, we're now imagining a quite a different world suddenly where there are these in invisible to us networks of fungus throughout every patch of soil in the planet. And they not only connect and distribute foods and, and communications between plants, they even inhabit or possess animal bodies. So suddenly it's almost a world in which the, the, the fungus is in control and the plants and animals are occasional puppets of their fungal masters. Am I, am I taking this too far? Well, in the case of these, um, these insect possessing fungi, then you've got it spot on. When it comes to plants, it's more of a balanced relationship. You know, no one knows who's farming who. The mycocentrists say that the fungi are farming the plants, and the phytocentrists say that the plants are farming the fungi, and of course both are right. Uh, so then you have a much more balanced exchange. Um, so, and so fungal interactions with organisms can spread across a whole spectrum. But so if we in the, the, the non-fungal world uh, we want to learn what wisdom you have uh, gathered from this sort of mysterious underground world. What do you feel you've learnt or what, what kind of more sort of philosophical um, conclusions have you reached from all of this? So the idea of the individual is a very big one. Um, and we're so used to thinking of ourselves as neatly bounded individuals. Um, and in fact, we carry around more microbes than our own cells, without which we wouldn't grow and behave as we do. And so these microbes uh, help us digest food, they influence our behavior, they protect us, help us protect us from disease. If they get into the wrong place, if a, a um, gut bacterium escapes into your bloodstream, it can go from being an ally to an enemy and can kill you. So we have this delicate, balanced relationship with trillions of microbes. Um, that coexist with us. And so we're not such a neatly definable biological unit as we might once have thought. Of course, bacteria themselves, large ones, can have small bacteria living inside them. Bacteria have viruses living inside them. Large viruses have small viruses living inside them. Uh, a large proportion of our genome started off in viruses. Many of the things that we take for granted that we do, like uh, live birth, as mammals, for example, that started off, that's only made possible by genes originally acquired by viruses. Then we look in, at fungi, and fungi uh, wrap around the roots of these plants, they connect them into these large networks, but fungi have bacteria living inside them too. And the bacteria living inside fungi have viruses living inside them. So this is just uh, the story of life. It's intimate relationships, it's symbiosis all the way down. What we think of as biological individuals um, may reflect our needs and our concerns more than biological reality. And so when we turn this idea of individuality into a question rather than an answer known in advance, I think all sorts of interesting things start to happen uh, because we can start to reconsider the way that we form relationships, both with other humans, with other animals, and with other um, organisms that aren't animals too. And so for me, this has been a very big line of inquiry and a line of questioning that has arisen through my study of fungi. So it almost sounds, uh, your, your father is famous for a phrase, um, morphic resonance, Rupert Sheldrake. How does it relate to that, do you think? I mean, is there a, this is a, a science book, this is about a particular type of organism, but it also remembers some of that slightly more mystical um, atmosphere. Do, how does it relate to ideas like morphic resonance, do you think? I would say that in 
my concern with the way that fungi connect organisms and in relation to my training as an ecologist where you look at the way that organisms form relationships with each other and their surroundings you have to look at those questions at higher levels than you would do if you were say a molecular biologist where you simply wouldn't have access to those sorts of interactions that go on in ecosystems all the time so um, in the sense that I'm concerned with the way that these things integrate together and form um, shimmering dynamical systems that um, form holes which are greater than the sums of their parts, I would say um, that I have learned a lot from my father who's concerned with looking at the way that things connect, uh, looking at the way uh, that things form holes, integrated holes, rather than um, always reducing systems to their constituent parts and hoping to find the answer there. So I'd say that fungi are easy ways into a more holistic view of nature because they're fundamentally interconnected and you can't think about the fungus without thinking about who it's living with and where it's living. Um, so I'd say that that's maybe one way. Everything from you know, government policy to economics is affected by a, essentially a kind of individualistic understanding of, of human beings as kind of units that interact via exchange or competition. Um, what would this sort of alternative view of us lead to, do you think, in, the, in those kind of more practical realms? I think we'd learn, we could learn to soften the boundaries of ourselves and to think of our bodies as made up of lots of nested cells. So if you think about your body as a um, community of cells which are working together cooperatively to produce this um, large differentiated organism which is you uh, and then all the microbes which are living together with your community of cells doing that um, you have all these different levels of um, selfhood um, levels of uh, tissues accomplishing certain tasks of microbes working with other parts of your body to accomplish certain tasks and maybe um, if we could soften the boundaries of ourselves or at least think about the way that uh, selfhood might be a question rather than an answer known in advance. We might start to reevaluate our relationships. Um, it's by imagining ourselves as neatly separable from each other and from the more than human world that we justify exploitation of the natural world or as other people. And so it strikes me that if we could reevaluate those uh, re relationships that we form, the way that we form those relationships, uh, we might end up in some more um, perhaps responsible places. Um, with regard to the ecosystems that sustain us. Um, if we see the ecosystem that sustain us and these flows of nutrition and energy that pass between us uh, and the ecosystems, if we see ourselves as part of these systems, which of course we are, then it becomes harder to justify uh, pollution or justify uh, an extractive uh, behavior that would sabotage a biogeochemical cycle on which we depend. I mean, obviously at the moment, um, we are in the middle of this uh, pandemic, the people are thinking about viruses a lot, uh, other diseases are caused by fungi. How have you experienced the past six months as a microbiome expert? Do you feel like the kind of conversation around this disease and around how we should understand it um, has been wise? Well, it's a very interesting period because this narrative that we're in charge and we're in control uh, and that large organisms uh, with us at the top of that uh, hierarchy are the clever ones, or at least the ones who know what's going on and have the ability to change the course of their, um, of their lives. 
has been diluted somewhat because this invisibly small entity of virus. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's not considered by many to be even alive. Um, has interposed itself between us and our ambitions um, and has caused our systems to ground to, ground to a halt. So I think there's a, a humility which I've uh, felt, um, which I've noticed very much in people who study microorganisms because it becomes very clear when you study microbes that these organisms have been here long before large animals, they'll be here long after long, large animals have gone. Um, it's really the, the history of life is a history of microbes and we're passing through. I would say that, you know, yes, there's been a humility in a sense, but there's also been a very much a kind of um, idea that it could be controlled by different government policies and so on. And the conversation has been a lot about, um, you know, which country has had the best uh, policy and how it should best be directed. And essentially, if virus does well, um, it's considered a sort of byproduct of whoever's in charge. Um, whilst by your account, we may be much less in charge of even a pandemic like this than you know, public policy experts like to say. Yeah, as you say, uh, we've been uh, thinking about this as a kind of uh, test for governments. And of course, if we were really concerned with dealing with this pandemic and future pandemics, which are um, the more long-term worry and are inevitable, um, we would stop doing the things that we're doing to make pandemics very likely. And we're doing a lot to make pandemics very likely, uh, whether it be deforestation, uh, all sorts of habitat destruction, which forces animals into different kinds of contact with humans and encourages these zoonotic leaps 
of viruses or whether the liberal anti, um, use of antibiotics in farming, which is a surefire way to breed new bacterial superbugs. Um, so obviously governments need to be working with this current pandemic, but if those in power are really serious about dealing with these threats in the future, um, then we would start to reevaluate some of those destructive practices. The whole kind of atmosphere of your book and what, and what you're saying now, is it's almost a rebuke to scientism or an overly mechanistic view of the universe that I think potentially people are guilty of in fields as wide as agriculture and economics and politics. Um, these are ideas that have been around since pretty much the Enlightenment kind of reached a, a, a sort of dominance now. Any kind of critique of a purely scientific view of the world, at least a sort of mechanistic scientific view of the world, um, gets a lot of criticism in return that it's either being irresponsible or that we are sort of, you know, talking, we are becoming sort of anti-science if they raise any questions about that method. How do we kind of strike that balance between respecting the, the benefits and the huge advances of science while still being cognizant of its deficiencies? Yes, yeah, so the mechanical philosophy arose as a movement in the 17th century as a way to make it easier to do experiments. Um, if we can envisage the um, natural world mechanically, it makes it easier to intervene mechanically and to think about ca uh, cause and effect in um, these mechanical terms. So it's a, it's a, it started as a metaphor, and these are still metaphors, these machine metaphors we use to understand the natural world. Of course, machines are built by humans, organisms grow. And so mechanistic perspectives have helped make countless discoveries of life-changing importance. And I wouldn't suggest for a moment that we abandon them entirely, but perhaps we could uh, enlarge our stock of metaphors and populate our descriptions with those borrowed from other places so that we don't forget that these organisms are uh, living beings engaged in lives that we struggle to understand. There's almost a kind of read across to politics in this as well. One of the controversies that you come back to a few times, which I thought was interesting, is whether the kind of symbiosis you describe between plants and fungi, where they're essentially kind of exchanging nutrients and, and behaving in a kind of almost economical context, um, whether it is truly a selfish, each, each plant or, or microbiome for, out for themselves arrangement, or whether it's some sort of more you know, concern for the greater whole. You don't fully come down on either side, I would say, on that. Um, but, but tell us about what you've found and where, where your thinking has gone on that. Yes, so there's a, when you're looking at these shared fungal networks, the World Wide Web idea, um, and you can have nutrients passing between plants, it presents a riddle for mainstream evolutionary theory, which struggles with the concept of altruism, because if an individual organism um, helps another organism at a cost to itself, then that organism will uh, survive more readily than it, and its altruistic genes will not make it into the next generation, and so will eventually be weeded out. Um, so there are a number of ways around this problem of altruism, and one is that organisms can help um, other organisms if they're, they're kin. And so there are some experiments that have shown, indeed, that plants um, that are related to each other exchange more nutrients than those that are unrelated. 
Uh, so we might see some kind of kin selection going on um, in this plant wood wide web world. But the quickest way around the problem is to flip the perspective. And so if you think, if you think about a plant, you know, when material passing from one plant to another, you think, well, why would this plant help its neighbor at a cost to itself? That's, you end up in the altruism trap. But if you flip the perspective and you think about this fungus, this fungus which has a portfolio of plant partners, um, and it, in the interest of the fungus, uh, to keep these plant partners alive. And if one dies, then um, the fungus has others that it can uh, survive on instead. So if you see it from a fungal point of view, uh, passing these nutrients to equalize the resources within this small part of the community, uh, you don't end up in an altruism problem. So this is the way that people have been thinking about it in the research community. I mean, there, there are passages where you're describing these sort of various nutrients and how the price, as it were, goes up or down, uh, depending on the scarcity in different parts of these underground networks, um, which sounds like a sort of uh, capitalist dream, a sort of finally proof that you know, the, the underground life is behaving in a kind of Adam Smith market way. Um, but then at other times, as you say, you say this is, under, this is underground socialism in action, and actually you know, the, um, that all of them are having kind of care for the whole in order to survive. So essentially, it's both. So as is always the case with the study of symbiosis, these, these lessons that we hope to extract from the natural world tell us as much about ourselves as the natural world that we're trying to describe. And it's a very common uh, thread in the history of the study of symbiosis. Um, these relationships have always been conceived of in human terms. Um, they are, the study of symbiosis behaves as a kind of prism through which our social values are refracted. And it's one of the most interesting things about the history of this branch of science. And so I think it's more helpful just to think about collaboration as always an alloy of competition and cooperation. And these two things are always in some kind of dynamic state of existence. And if you want to find in the natural world um, some example of terrible, um, apparently terrible exploitation, then of course you can find that example and you can pin it up on your wall. And if you want to find an example of a heartwarming um, cooperation, you can also find that. Um, but this idea of collaboration as both competition and cooperation, I think is quite helpful because it helps to take us into a maybe a larger room where we could admit that the course of evolution has been um, driven by both competitive forces and cooperative forces, um, rather than having to side firmly with one or the other. There was one uh, example that I remember where you talk about how um, different parts of these underground networks communicate and how they become aware of what's happening elsewhere in the network. Um, and the analogy you give is, is screaming. So if something bad is happening on, to, to a plant, say, that is connected to this mycelial network, it's the equivalent of a scream. And the question there is, are they screaming for help or are they just screaming? And are they being overheard in screaming? So I thought that was quite an interesting Way of seeing it. Yeah, so that was the screaming metaphor is used in, in discussion of these how signals can pass between plants through fungal networks. Uh, the phenomenon is well established. Uh, the question is how and why? And so some people say, well, the plant is it's a sort of an active process, it's signaling to its neighbors to alert them of the impending attack from some herbivore, aphids or whatever. Uh, others say, no, no, no. That's not what's going on because they wouldn't want to, it wouldn't be in their interest to signal that to that to their neighbors. So actually it's uh, the neighbors are just eavesdropping on their stress and their stress is passing through as some kind of chemical signal through the network. Um, and we don't have the tools to resolve 
this causal arrow right now. Um, it's often the case in interactions that it's hard to resolve the causal arrow. If you had a human situation, um, someone was attacked in the street, uh, they screamed, and someone came to their rescue, then the question of why they screamed, even if you asked the person outright, uh, did they scream because they were upset or, or in shock or in pain, or did they scream to alert someone else, or both? Uh, that person might not themselves be able to tell you which one or both it was. Um, and so imagine trying to get that information from a plant. There's a whole sort of, I was about to say, subterranean community, um, which occasionally you describe in this book that most people are probably not aware of at all, um, which are fungal enthusiasts, um, and they crop up um, rather like mushrooms in these kind of conferences that happen around the world. Um, describe that community. What sort of people are they? Are they kind of conventional scientists? Are they sort of mystics? How would you describe the, the global fungal community as you've encountered it? Well, it's enormously diverse for a start. You have people who are passionate uh, mushroom foragers, and you have all sorts of different mushroom traditions in different countries, and are going back quite a long way. Um, and you have people who are very interested in mushrooms and then became interested in fungi more generally. Uh, and so the, thing, the scene I was describing in the book is one that started really on the west coast of North America. Um, and it comes out of this more general trend in, in um, this kind of DIY hacker culture, um, biohacking as civilian science, um, people taking the study of science outside um, of its conventional home and university departments and putting it back into people's garages and, and gardens where it actually started um, hundreds of years ago. And so it's part of this DIY scene that you find a lot of this mycological activity happening in the States. Uh, and these mycohackers, do, uh, they do an enormous amount. Uh, there's these forums that sprung up online when um, you know, from, from the early days of the, of the um, World Wide Web to of magic mushroom growers, finding new ways to cultivate magic mushrooms in their garages and um, kitchen sink mycology. And these techniques, it turns out, are generally applicable to all sorts of other aspects of mushroom cultivation or fungal cultivation. And so there's this very um, bustling and innovative community of people who are conducting um, quite serious research but outside the purview of conventional academia. Um, and so it's really, um, it's quite an exciting place. There's, a, there's an atmosphere of uh, incredible motivation. Motivation to what? what's the sort of holy grail? Uh, is it, you know, because some viewers will no doubt think that it's a sort of hippie um, kind of drug community in some way, that, you know, it's magic mushrooms, everyone is sort of looking for the perfect trip or whatever. You would say that it's a lot more than that. Um, in which case, what are those other goals? So many of these people are um, not growing magic mushrooms at all. I mean, a lot of them are just growing uh, gourmet mushrooms, which is a very a good way to make money because you can use agricultural waste, uh, material that would otherwise be thrown away, and you can turn that into a valuable cash crop that goes quickly in small space and can be sold to restaurants with a lot of value added. So um, there's that part, the culinary part. But with regard to the motivation, there are a few, there are lots of different ways that these, um, that these DIA mycologists uh, think about it. Um, a lot of them are concerned with gardening and agriculture and developing more sustainable agricultural techniques based around concern for the health of the soil and uh, composting methods and 
new ways to build systems in agriculture that don't depend on heavy doses of industrial chemicals. And there are other people who are concerned with um, developing ways that fungi can be used to break down poisons or help with environmental cleanup operations, uh, something known as microremediation. Um, fungi have amazing appetites for um, things like crude oil, for example, and, and so people are working to develop systems to help to remediate polluted environments using fungi. So you see a whole blend. You see people who are concerned with um, making things from fungi, you know, making materials, building materials from fungi. Um, this is actually quite big business now. And Adele is shipping thousands of servers a year in fungal materials, uh, fungal packaging. IKEA have, are in the process of reimagining their entire packaging market to incorporate fungal packaging. So there's all sorts of fungal applications. And you see all of these converge in quite a, a polyphonic way in this mycological uh, hacker scenes. Because you find, at least here in the UK, there, I find even in the kind of mushroom context, there is a, a weird aversion to it. You talk about some societies being kind of mycophiliac or mycophobic. I would say the UK is predominantly a mycophobic uh, culture, at least compared to Sweden, certainly. Uh, you know, if you stop to pick a mushroom in the UK, you quite often might be, you might be stopped in your tracks. People say it's a toadstool, stay away. Um, so there's a sort of job to do to... Uh, to, to rehabilitate the, the, the reputation of, of the mushroom. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in many parts of the world, um, there's a very long history of um, fungal, deep in fungal involvement in culture. Like in, in China, for example, the person who discovered how to grow shiitake mushrooms in the year 1000 or thereabouts, there's a feast day every year and, and temples built in his honor. Um, this great national hero um, who worked out how to cultivate this, this, this medicinal and nutritious mushroom. So. Um, it's hard to imagine something like that happening in England, for sure. So give us a kind of uh, concluding thought. You've thought so much about this. You've been so closely involved that you've almost imagined the world as seen by a fungus. Do you feel you behave differently since that? Have you learnt things from fungi? And do you think you now, in your sort of daily life, are remembering those lessons in some ways? Yeah, I mean, I think that thinking about fungi makes the world look different. And when the world looks different, we start to behave differently. And that's really something that I've noticed in myself. Um, when I am handling a plant, I realize that, oh, this plant is this alga, which has evolved to farm a fungus, and a fungus which has evolved to farm an alga. And, and this plant life, which I think of as a plant life, is um, also a fungal life, or a many fungal lives. Um, and just that thought, just that realization, um, does quite a lot to change my relationship to that plant, that, that what I'm going to do, it, I'm going to cook it. And however I touch it, however I handle it, um, my attitude changes. So there are lots of ways like this that um, my behavior has changed in small ways based on realizations that I've had to do with the fungal uh, world and the way that um, the world we think of as our world is very much a fungal world. There's another, another is to do with the relationships that form between organisms that may be invisible. You know, we form these, um, we have these encounters with other humans, with other organisms, other plants, with, um, with others. And these encounters don't usually leave an enduring physical connection. But once you start to think about fungi and these actual enduring physical connections, um, then it's easier to see the way that these dynamic relationships form and evolve in other aspects of our lives, maybe that aren't actually visible as enduring physical connections. Um, and so it's easier to remember that we're bound up within these shimmering constellations of activity in these um, constantly evolving processes 
um, and that this relational awareness is something that can really change the way that we go about our lives. I personally have found that it changes the way that I go about my life. Um, so there are many, there are many sort of small shifts in perspective that add up after a while that I've found. So the next time we see a mushroom in the forest or on a walk, we need to remember that it is not a little unit growing out of nothing. It's actually the tiny visible tip of a vast underground network. Absolutely. Merlin Sheldrake, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks again to Merlin Sheldrake. Who knew that there was so much to learn from the world of mushrooms? Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.